0: The sound of your city, CIUT 89.5 Toronto.
1: The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT FM.
0: Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Yes, that is where you are here on CIUT eighty-nine. FM. Again, thank you for those who contributed during our fundraising week. We are, after all, the only remaining uh listener sponsored radio station in all of the gta and we come to you uh from buffalo to barry from kitchener to coburg uh and i've been doing so and on this show the radical reverend show for over 20 years my goodness i'm feeling old uh, but thank you for all your uh gifts uh it's been wonderful today i'm i'm delighted to really talk about uh we're going to go back to one of the core demands of black lives matter which is to fund the police. Um, the second half of the show, I've got Samira Boule. Uh, he's a founding member of uh, Doctors Who Defund the Police. And right off the bat, I'm delighted to have Professor Beverly Bain. She teaches at University of Toronto and she's one of the founding members of No Pride in Policing. Uh, so, Beverly, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
2: Thank you very much, um, Sherry.
0: So let's jump right in. Um, okay. Let's talk about No Pride in Policing. Why No Pride in Policing? Why Why did you and others found it? And um, And what are what, What's its mission statement? What does it hope to accomplish? Well,
2: we um, pride, uh, No Pride in Policing Coalition was founded um, right after uh, uh, it, we we were told or we heard that um, Pride uh, Toronto was, um, had opened up the door to invite the police back into Pride. And um, we immediately, and that was in 2018, that we immediately um, uh, uh, brought people together again Mm -hmm. to actually um, create this coalition um, to stop, pride from um taking such liberties of bringing the police back into pride and that required us uh we had a general meeting coming up um you know um in october uh, of that year and we wanted to make sure that that people were on board and that we were preparing to challenge pride's um you know um suggestion or you know um proposal to invite the police back in Pride. So that's where we, um, that's how we started. That's where it it, it got its source. And we also started on the basis of, and I should say, prior to that, we did start, um, No Pride in Policing was formed prior to 2018 as a way to support the demands of Black Lives Matter at the time um, that actually called for no no police in Pride, no institutional, police and pride um, at all. And we um, formed around that. And um, the first um, uh, general meeting following after we were formed around 2017, I think it was, um, uh, uh, the membership voted for no police and pride. But in 2018, we heard that they were going to invite police back in pride. And that's when we, again, um, got together, did a press conference and mobilized mem- uh, the membership to um, not support this demand that, uh, that, that um, uh, Pride Toronto was trying to put on the table. So that's how we actually um, sort of formulated ourselves and came together. It was around preventing police. Uh, participation, police's institutional participation. I'm making, well, not, I mean, any individual can, who square can participate in Pride, but we're talking about institutional participation, which involve floats, they marching in uniform, where there is a presence of the police as a contingent in the Pride parade.
0: Speaking to uh, Professor Beverly Bain here at U of T and founder of one of the co-founders of No Pride in Policing. Beverly, just uh, for the sake of some listeners, maybe, um, you know, and I kind of rehash for us why. I mean, why should police not march in pride? Why don't we want a police presence there?
2: Well, let's let's look. First and foremost, let's start with pride as the festivities and the way that pride itself was actually... That came into existence. It came into existence through politics, but most of all, it came into existence as a response to, you know, the struggle that LGBTQ, queers, and trans fought uh, against um, police brutality. I mean, if we go back to Stonewall, if we go back to the Barthouse races, um, the bathhouse raids here in Toronto, um, we saw that in 1981 at the Barthouse raid, the way that the police battered and and beat and bruised queers and trans in this city. Right? So the history of police with um, queers and trans in this city has always been one where queers and trans were violated in this city. Now, in the midst of all of this, what had happened? We saw that um, there was a killer in uh the um in 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 the in the gay village where a number of brown men went missing right in 2017 well 2016 2017 the police was alerted that uh, by 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 friends and family members that certain people were missing they happened to be brown men the police did nothing did not uh basically they were making comments like well you know these men um some of them are um, non- do, uh, undocumented, some are here illegally, and maybe they're hiding, right? Because they're undocumented and, they, and they're illegal. And people are saying, no, we know these people and we haven't seen them for a long time. Something is wrong. And they ignored it. And in fact, they had it on their lap at one point where it became clear they actually arrested um, this particular man, you know, um, uh, who actually was killing black and brown men. I mean, brown men. Sorry, in this city, South Asian men, in this city, um, uh, um, queer men, um, and they actually MacArthur and Bruce MacArthur, and they let him go. They they brought him in, and because of course he's this white man who looks like a gentleman, because this is how whiteness always um presents itself around white men in particular in this city is that even though these individuals are committing atrocious violence they get presented as gentlemen so he came in they interviewed him uh, and they let him go and uh, the murder continued and it wasn't and it took forever before they actually acknowledged that there was a serial killer and that this man, the man they let go, was that man, right? So we see in the meantime, brown men were being murdered. So we see that, here's that example. India, uh, 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 as we look to what was happening with trans women in this city, along Wells, she was killed. Her mother told them something had happened, they ignored it because she was a trans um, uh, prostitute, trans sex worker. Right? So there is no respect. There hasn't been any respect, recognition, um, any particular kinds of acknowledgement of the importance of the lives of LGBTQ uh, people in this city. Yet come pride, and we are supposed to see them as allies. I think that's really problematic. And this is why we couldn't under any circumstances justify or legitimize any kind of connection with the police. They were continuing to actually beef up their um, uh, uh, their budget, right? Um, on the backs of the people who they were killing. Black people in the city were being killed and murdered uh, by the police. Right? You know, black people are, queer pe- as, are queers as well right? So these are all part of our community. We couldn't legitimize uh, a relationship with the police that continues to um, uh, to, to shoot and kill black people, indigenous people in this city, brown people in this city, queer people and trans people in this city. We just can't justify this. And nothing has changed. (laughs) And nothing has changed, right? Not even in this moment. Nothing has changed. And I do not believe that the police as an institution is capable of change. It must be dismantled. It must be defunded,
0: right? Yeah, let's 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 unpack that. Speaking to Professor Beverly Bain here on the Radical Reverend Show. If you've just tuned in, um, Prophet U of T and one of the founders of No Pride in Policing. Um, let's unpack that because you know th- there have been calls for reform for forever, right? Um, police have apologized numerous times for this and that. Um, they they've recruited you know LGBTQ people. Um, they've repeat you know they've recruited racialized people. Um, why, isn't, why would you say that's not enough? It isn't enough.
2: Because, those, because first and foremost, I have been actually working. Um, I've worked um, around policing for the last 30 years. Um, I worked with Jane Doe, who's a woman who was um, um, raped in uh, 1984, and actually sued the police for using her as bait right we did a whole process at the city around you know creating um um um, a process where you can where the police can be held accountable for its investigation processes around sexual assault we see how that is ending right i mean we're still having problems with police um, appropriate protocols for investigation of sexual assault right Um, We've seen the reluctance and the resistance on the part of that institution to change, right? It's a a clear refusal of that institution to change. That institution sees itself as one that is serving the interests of protecting property, protecting capital, protecting uh, um, the state, protecting the rich. It is not about um, creating safety for people. We have seen during the pandemic the way in which the police um, uh, in which um, you know police um, uh, uh, surveillance and violence escalated, right? The way in which more police was deployed in the public space when people were actually not in that space, but they had taken over the entire the, the occupied public space as a way to show that public space is something that, the state owns, and it's no longer spaces that people should have access to. We see what happened over the summer with the police in terms of what they have done, what they did to the encamp, the people who were in encampment, the war they declared on them, the way that the uh, uh, Toronto mayor John Tory put $200 million into security personnel to work with the police to remove um, those who are encamped, like 20 encampments, right? The violence they unleashed on people who went there to support, right? The, the, those who were, um, those in the encampment. We see what the way in which policing continue to escalate. Look what's happening in Wet'suwet'en, right? The RCMP, we just learned that Doug Ford the province has now um, um, put forward and uh, $71.1 million, right? Um, to uh, t- to um, um, budget, you know, as a way for guns and gangs. We know that crime is down. And we also asked for the funding of police and to have those resources re-allocated um, to communities decide how they can create supports for communities around you know around mental health around um you know employment around housing you know how much um support 71 million can can give to people who are uh unhoused people who are, are struggling to pay their rent people who are facing evictions right um people who um you know are in poverty 71 million for guns and gangs and, 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 and crime is down? I mean, l- let's think of how ridiculous and the prior and the wrongness of the priorities of our governments and our inst- state and policing institutions that what is prioritized is militarization, surveillance, technology, and um you know and 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 a way of visiting more violence on the most marginalized
0: one of the um speaking to uh, professor beverly bain here at from u of t uh one of the co-founders of no pride in policing one of the myths uh that i think canadians generally kind of have been fed is that uh you know our our policing somehow it's better up here um white supremacy isn't as big an issue up here as it is south of the border um and yet One of the startling realities is that in our city, City of Toronto, that sees itself as progressive quotes-on-quotes on some days. Um, uh, we couldn't even, counselors couldn't even uh, take off, what, 10, 15% of the police budget. In fact, um, the police in Toronto got more money for body cams coming out of that exercise, Absolutely. not to mention the province. Why is this, Beverly? Like, why can, can I, we get I, I, no I think, traction in, in and this?
2: I think, and I think people have to understand that we, we need to think differently about protection and safety first and foremost we need to do away with the myth that police protects people but police protects certain people the rich the wealthy and and certain kind of state officials but and it protects property and it protects it make sure it maintains the flow of capital right it supports the state in that process but it doesn't support marginalized people it doesn't support poor people it doesn't support rage, racialized people right the police i mean this 7. Point, this 71.1 million um, addition that is going to be circulated means that even though we argued for no more funding that the police is indirectly through the back door being funded because they are funded for a whole new project as you said they have, they were funded for they, um they were given They were funded for $6 million um, a year for body cams. We know that body cams are not actually um, sustainable. I mean, we were told from American research that body cams does not really work. You can turn it on and turn it off at will, and it doesn't necessarily show you exactly what's happening when, right? It does not necessarily do anything to add uh, as a way of protection because the person would have already been dead anyway. So how is that person safe? It's not preventing that person from being killed. So then what's the point? We need to see that person killed so we can say, oh yes, we saw what happened. No, we need, we need to know that that person will not be killed. And that's our, that's our task. Our priority is to stop people from dying, It's to stop people from being killed, not to see them killed afterwards you know what i mean or not to see how they have been killed on camera that is not the goal the goal is to stop people from dying beforehand how do you do that you do that by actually um you know um, uh, 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 defunding right uh you do that by you know demilitarizing the police you do that by de, um you know deconstructing that institution and you do that by allocating, reallocating, taking that money and you know, putting it into sustainable programs and supports for people in communities. So people they should be focusing on how do we actually ensure that people have food on their tables? How do we make sure that people are able to stay in their homes because they, you know, we're supporting them in terms of affordable housing and rent? How do we how are we how do we um, how can we support people by ensuring that we trust that their communities can create you know mental health and other kinds of supports how do we not prioritize police being on the scene in, in situation where people are in a mental health crisis but that we trust in communities to create teams to do that right that is what a, a caring, society should be right but we don't live in a caring society we live in a much more of a militarized much more of a violent uh society that is visited upon certain people and what we are saying that police is part of that problem right which is why we are calling for abolition and people don't want to hear that term they think you know abolition um, they think that the idea of no police is something that um it, 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 you know, it's like we can't say we don't need police. We need police, but what do we need police for? If we start creating societies that are at the root just and ethical and caring, we would need less and less police. I mean, in Spain, you know, I mean they have a whole policy there where you know, um, you know, police is actually uh, people don't get locked up. You know. Um, arresting and putting people in jail is not a priority in fact who the focus that the state goes after is, is migrants again this is the problem that we are we're, we're witnessing is that migrants and, and people of color and poor people become the target so if we can create a society where we don't treat migrants as dangerous and as violent and as enemies and as criminalized but we create societies where our borders are open. We create society where, you know, the common space, right, or the common, you know, um, you know, um, the, the commons are a place where we can all circulate freely without being um, uh, uh, um, violated and abused and surveilled and regulated, right, where we can put in places ways and we can start creating communities and ways of how we can be accountable to each other, how we can be responsible to each other, how we can be supportive of each other, where we involve collective kind of creating communities together. You know, we will need police less and less. (laughs) You know, we will need we would not need that kind of policing for sure, where it's always that which ends in the death of particular people who are and those who are marginalized and those who are racialized and those who are black and those who are indigenous.
0: Speaking um, to Professor Beverly Bain, U of T, uh, found, one of the founders of No Pride in Policing here on the Radical Reverend show. Thanks for tuning in. And by the way, it will be on podcast after uh, the radio show. So if you're hearing uh, this on podcast, uh, thank you for tuning into that and always interested in your feedback. Um, uh, Beverly, one of the things, you know, I've been tweeting about the Wet'suwet'en, the RCMP invasion on their land. Um counter to the u.n counter to the courts i mean just a a sheer invasion out there um uh and and some of the feedback i got back as well you know uh governments politicians don't control the police you know they're they're independent of political process um which, which of course is not true um i mean if it were true we would definitely be living in a police state which um but I mean politicians sometimes seem to act like that so how do we get so how do we how do we bring this about how do we actually defund the police um where do we start and and why could politicians independent of stripe because we're looking at an NDP government in BC conservative government here um we're looking at similar results how, independent of political stripe how do we get these politicians to do something?
2: Well, I think I mean I I I don't think that we need to focus on politicians. I don't think politicians are going to do anything. I, I mean they have a vested interest in particular kinds of state protocols and policies that they themselves have been participants in designing, right? Which actually works for themselves and work for each other and work for a certain kind of understanding of state practices. Right. So I don't think politicians, if politicians were there to help us, the NDP would not be such so useless at the time in terms of being afraid to take solid positions and stand with us. Right. Um, so that is a, a clear indication that we cannot rely on politicians. We have to focus on people power. We have to focus on mobilizing people on the ground to actually um, or to actually um, demand, to actually work against the state. So we have to stop, we, we, make, we continue to make our demands and we continue to pose every counter pose every time they do something that we don't like. But in the meantime, we have to be organizing on the ground. We have to start creating new forms of collectives on the ground of how we care for each other, of how we support each other. So for example, You know, one of the things that um, people did around, you know, when they were, um, you know, going after the people at the encampment is people create support groups to um, monitor what was happening, to also be present uh, and, and be witnesses when these were happening, to form lines and form ways to protect, barricades to protect people to make sure that people have food, to make sure that they have blankets, to make sure that they are, you know, that they are, you know to stand guard, to make sure that there's a lookout, there's safety. All of these things are ways in which people power can shift, um, you know, the, 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 the reliance on state um, 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 uh, 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 requirements, on state necessity, right, in terms of us protecting each other. Right, in terms of us being there for each other, in terms of creating all this collective power, there were times in our in our um, in, in, in our world where we did a lot of that kind of work for each other. That has all shifted because of the terrain that we live in. We have moved so much further into this terrain of capital and financialization and individualism and um, a focus on you know you know the individual in a way that in there was a time when we actually focused a lot on creating ways to protect each other
1: i mean that did
2: you know i mean policing was always an issue but an always an issue for particular groups of people like blacks and and, and indigenous but there was also a time when we had much more leverage in the sense of being able to leverage you know um ourselves as as community activists and 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 leverage community power all of that does not exist anymore and of course a lot of it has to do with the way the global world has become far more militarized far more um you know um focused on surveillance far more you know um um invested in you know, um, promoting and, and 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 really reifying and heightening, you know, uh, uh, white masculinity and white um, and, and 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 white supremacy. Not that it wasn't there, but it's a way more evident, way more in your face, way more um, uh, um, virulent, right? In ways that there was a time when we could push back and do that. Um, where we felt that the state actually um, um, sort of intervened to make sure that happened um, what we are seeing now is that you know I mean what we're seeing now is that there's no room for that anymore right the state has always been problematic but it has been useful at times right um, in the past now we cannot rely on the state because the state sees itself you know, as incapable of managing its military apparatus as it um, articulates, it has devolved all of its, you know, state power to these mechanisms. And it allows, you know, the RCMP, uh, the military, the police, um, a lot of reign to actually manage and, 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 and control and, and um, violate populations right so you know and, and and that's part and parcel of how the state sees itself as you know maintaining its own you know um, um, terrain and, and protecting itself you know so we now have uh, are, are seen as those who are a danger you know more so than we ever have to um, you know state and political and and, and, and and policing power and the reason why we are seen as more dangerous, is also, there's also a particular kind of resistance from the ground that is also taking place in spite of the um, suppression, in spite of the um, in the, in the uh, determination to stifle, dissent, right? There is a surge as well that's also seeping out where people are saying, we're not gonna lie down and roll over for you, you know? So you're seeing people in the street uh, during the pandemic in the 20 in 2020, around, you know, protests, you continue, people continue to mobilize, even if, even though we're not seeing it, people continue to mobilize in particular ways, and people are determined. And what's also growing, I think, is also this, this chorus of abolition, there's more and more people that are um, uh, uh, that are um, actually begin, uh, actually um, supporting this call for defunding and supporting this call for abolition more so than ever, right? More so than um, in the 20, in 1920 in 2020, you're seeing more people now today calling for abolition and supporting abolition because they understand. People are beginning to understand that this militarization that we are that is actually festering and building up is more of a threat to us, right, than anything else at this point in time. And I think people are beginning to say, look, you know, nobody's listening to us. We had a whole, they had a whole, um, you know, when City Hall had its deputations, everybody was calling for defunding. And so far that has not happened. And what people have recognized is that nobody's listening to them, not even the regular, you know, person on the street who called for defunding felt that they were hurt. So people are not seeing the police as a, as, as a viable option of, of safety and protection. Anymore. Most people have already uh, recognized that this, there has to be a different way of us living together as humans, if we are to have a livable future. So police and policing and militarization is definitely not that. So what thank, is? is, thank, what
0: is thank you so much, <laughs> Professor Bain. Uh, we're over time now, but um, we'll <laughs> end on that really positive note uh, and uh, say it's okay. It's I'm all. It's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> and uh, stay tuned for Samir on the Radical Reverend.
1: Your radio, CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city.
0: Uh, delighted to have you back, all you in listener land, on the Radical Reverend show here. Um, Want to thank uh, Butilla Carpoche, MPP for Parkdale High Park, for the first segment, uh, and of course you can hear us now, almost live. I mean, it is tape, but you know, live as we can get. Uh, and then you can hear us forever on podcast, on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, For the second part of the show, I'm delighted to have someone who's been on the show before as well, Samir Boulay. And Samir is a resident, medical resident in psychiatry here in Toronto, and he's also one of the founders of Doctors for Defunding uh, the Police. Welcome, Samir, to the Radical Reverend Show.
1: Thank you for having me. Well, good to be back.
0: So let's just, you know, dive right in. I mean, first of all, there was a demonstration the other day, Uh, for 10 paid sick days which we still don't have in Ontario we are at three Um, I don't know how you're supposed to quarantine for two weeks with only three paid sick days but but you know let's talk about let's talk about the pandemic it's still with us cases are are rising slightly um yeah talk to us about the pandemic from a medical point of view (laughs)
1: yeah um I think um where we are in, right I like to take us like I'm a psychiatric resident. That's where I'm going. My career is going to be in mental health. Where I want to focus on is how do we make people well in today's society overall. And COVID's going to be with us. That's that's what it's looking like overall. It doesn't look like the the structures that we have available to us are trying to go to eliminate what what we need to do or go for it completely or do the things that we think would make society safer like in our schools when we talked about reopening the schools we talked about smaller class sizes ventilation uh, masking every, everything like that we're not doing those things clearly we're, we're kind of just like half-assing and like saying okay businesses are going to open and we're going to try to make them smaller but but not really how we're not going to mandate anything about the ventilation even though we know for a fact covid is airborne now it's not like a like a oh, we don't know. It's like, no, this is an airborne illness. What we have to do is take airborne precautions. Those precautions are much different than (laughs) the droplet precautions we were taking previously. So to me, uh, it is, it's a question of political will, uh, and there is none uh, at this time. It seems that Doug Ford has moved on to uh, blaming gangs and guns and saying that, okay, we need to fight that with uh, (laughs) his
0: And, and yeah, and we know we know that that's just a racist trope, basically. At the end of the day, um, let's talk about that because we also know that COVID, you know, hasn't hit everybody equally. Um, no. I mean we're looking at um, you know a contagion that's mainly and mostly affected racialized communities. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so let, let's talk about that. I mean why, um, I mean, I think it should be obvious to some folk, but but it's good to go over, like, why is that the case? And why is that shifting, but not nearly enough?
1: Yeah, so just to give everyone who doesn't know about us, so I'm, my name is Samara, I work with doctors for defunding the police. And we actually came out of COVID and really the George Floyd issues with um, the idea that like policing is a public health crisis. Like the, the health of our patients is more than just, okay, when they step into our offices. And what we were trying to say with just the violence and just, oh, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. At this point, um, Sorry, could we clarify the question if that was okay? Yeah, no, it, like yeah. what
0: racialized communities being hardest hit by COVID, like, yeah, it's, you know, okay. why, what 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 are you know why why is that? Um, I mean, this is certainly documented well enough, but but mm-hmm. the, you know the, the the reasons haven't really been gone into.
1: No, no, but yeah. So um, basically, again, sorry about that. But for doctors, for <inaudible> DFL police, we came out of so we work with the communities who are most impacted by COVID nineteen by poverty by bad education systems, by the criminal justice system. So we work with the people that are most dejected by society most of the time. So when you see these families that are working in factories, work three, four jobs, immigrants are just coming here looking for a better life. People, honestly, that just put their head down and try to do their best, who... This system isn't made for them. This system said, you guys are essential workers, we're gonna send you out, good luck. While the majority of people like me, who are white collar workers now, could just sit in our cushy offices, order Uber Eats as many times as we want, do, do everything else to stay comfortable as much as possible. But what, what, we're, what we're saying and what we're really seeing now is it more of a two-tiered society where there's populations and groups that are, we don't care what happens to them. We had a bunch of migrants that came from uh, for our food production system. And what happened to them? We were hearing that they were stuffing them in rooms of 12 to 16 people in just one room and COVID was going through them and people were just dying. We heard about things in the meat packing factories where people were dying like crazy and nobody was saying anything. Our LTC homes are an absolute disaster. We, I have friends whose mothers died working there just because no one was giving them adequate PPE. They were wearing garbage bags over and over again to see different patients. So imagine going to an LTC home, you're seeing 30 to 35 patients, you're the one PSW and you're wearing the same mask to see patients. And you know, some of them have COVID and some don't. Like we had so many structural issues that were so ingrained in our society that we just, just ignore They've always been there. They've always been there. And like groups like ours have been trying to work with them. People like, like I work with the black community previously, like I'm from Rexdale and from the west side of Toronto. So my background is working with those communities. But now with COVID, we've been trying to come together and amalgamate with other groups working with the LGBT community or the homeless community or communities, the Muslim communities, communities out there and saying, okay, everyone is being impacted by this negatively what are the threads that we are seeing in common between us and how can we help each other and to be honest it, it's it is horrible out there right now it is not is not nice so there is there is there is a good sentiment from the idea that people are talking about these issues people are looking at it like people know their issues but our politicians are so far off it's disgusting
0: so speaking here with Samir Boulet um one of the founders of doctors uh, to defund the police. Uh, I mean, this just this last week we saw an RCMP invasion, that's what it was, on um, Wet'suwet'en territory. There were demonstrations right across Canada and even in the UK about this issue. Um, uh, <laughs> NDP government didn't do much, said so, you know, too bad, so sad, basically. Um, and uh, Ottawa didn't do much. and uh one of the and, and anyway i like many 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 were tweeting about this um and one of the one of the responses i got and i just you know under the under the umbrella of doctors who defund the police want to ask you know get your take on this of one, one of the responses was well you know uh luckily luckily governments do not control the police Federal government does not control what the RCMP does, and neither, uh, do, you know, do provincial governments control provincial police or cities control city police. Um, this is this is, I mean, shockingly, it's partly true, right? Um, Talking about true, that.
1: <laughs> so what we know about police and what we know experience here in Toronto specifically is the people who fund the police, so the taxpayers, us, and the politicians that are. And technically in control of their budgets, because they are technically, don't really know what's going on and don't have any control overall, like zero. It's very much like just, uh, (laughs) we kind of call it like a blank check. It's like, okay, we know they need a 4% raise year over year. We don't really argue about what they're doing it for. In Toronto specifically, we have a $1.27 billion budget where 89% of it goes to salaries. So there's about 4,000 uniformed officers, 7,000 with the civilians. It was just to their salaries? Okay, um, what do you actually have to do with the money? What are the mandates that you have to do for our, our populations, for our people? The RCMP have no mandates that are particularly good for the population that they're supposed to serve. The RCMP particularly, let's talk about the, the pipelines per se, uh, their pensions are invested in the pipelines that they're going to protect uh, in quotations, fully, pre- full quotations, because that's not what they're doing the the, the what's people have full self-determination of their land and if their hereditary chiefs are talking about they w- they don't want the pipeline going through their land that should be it like through our through our laws that like legally we always talk about the legal ramifications of everything right when when uh, a black person gets shot in a mental health crisis or something's going on you always say but legally you know it is we're doing our just this is what we're doing it's, it's the right way we took our the steps the SIU came in and it said it's okay okay legally, the Wet'suwet'en have complete control of their land. Complete. And they can dictate what happens, who comes in and who comes out. Well, what are we doing with the sending our RCMP and our tanks and everyone down there to really make this... Well, how do we expect this to end? Seriously. And the fact that it's an NDP government is the best part about this. Because that really tells you like, even when they... It, it's a facade. The idea that these political parties are completely different, that they serve different populations like workers are being served by the ndp is almost a joke right like workers indigenous people immigrants like we're supposed to have a base in a left-wing ndp party or whatever you want to say liberal whatever you want to call it but when we actually see in practice we vote for these parties the last 30 to 40 years in canada has just been more <laughs> cuts to health care cuts to education more funding for the police lower taxation for a subset of the population and it just creates a whole neoliberal, just disgusting society where, as a psychiatrist, going to psychiatry, what I do, we're experiencing diseases of despair at a level that we've never seen before. People are dying from the opioid crisis, alcoholism, <laughs> suicide, depression, anxiety. We don't talk about these things. And what we're seeing is we're creating society that just it predisposes you to suffer from this stuff. And if we don't take this whole thing was like, this is a very big picture thing. Like these people are protecting the land. That, that that means more to them than anything. That is their essence. And if we just ignore that, then I think we're we're missing something here that's much more powerful.
0: Speaking to uh, Samir Boulay here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in, um, resident in psychiatry here in Toronto and fa- one of the founders of Doctors uh, to Defund the Police, he um, yeah, I mean, it's it's chronic and of course we've seen the justice system um, south of the border with Kyle Rittenhouse and Canadians tend to uh, feel a little superior to the American justice system, but we haven't really done much better. I mean, in, in some senses, in terms of defunding the police, we've done worse up here, I think. Um, I mean, we, we're all aware of, or we should be aware uh, in Toronto and the GTA that a motion came you know, uh, quite a while ago to um, just take, what was it, 10, 15% off the police budget did not pass. And in fact, we have increased the police budget year to year to year. Um, Just throwing into the conversation, we've been doing this series at my church as speakers and with uh, Beverly Bain, professor at U of T. Um, She's coming, uh, or she's come, you know, as this airs uh, with Kristen Wong Tam coming up in, in January. And we had John Sewell, former mayor, and he's written a number of books on policing. And one of the stats, I mean, a lot of the violence and racism we've heard about and we've talked about in the show. One of the stats that really jumped out at me that I thought was, you know, shocking was how few calls they actually do. And these are from police stats themselves. Yes. Um, first of all, the fact that they're still driving around two to a car all over the place. Um, kind of that's kind of you know that's kind of you know offside i mean um just just for historical accuracy so at one point apparently the fire department used to do that driving around looking for fires um then they figured out that was a complete waste of time and money sit in the firehouse wait for the call to come in we don't do that with the police so but basically what are these people driving around fully armed doing um, well, apparently not much, because according to the police's own statistics, there are very few calls that they go on, um, and very. So it's an incredibly expensive way of providing safety. And uh, um, and Samir, maybe you could talk about you know whose safety, yeah. because uh, that's uh, you know when you talk to an all-white audience. Um, they kind of, and we all watch the same TV shows often and you know, glorify yeah. policing. Um, but I mean, it's they feel safer because of police out there, not so much in racialized communities. Talk about that.
1: Hey, I'll give a perfect example. I grew up in the west side of Toronto in the Rexdale. My parents were refugees to this country. So I grew up at the brunt of the system. We weren't poor, but we weren't the most well-off. And if I could tell you how policing impacted not just my life, but the life of the people around me, it would be absolutely ridiculous to you. By the time I'm 16, I'm a a top student in my schools. I'm a very good student. I do my best, clean, nothing wrong with me. But the amount of times I start driving, I get pulled over at least a dozen times, getting carded every time I leave my community with a different variation of, oh, what are you doing? Where are you going? Just wanting to check on you today. Like the, the pervasiveness of policing to just always be in your psyche. So even when I'm walking to school, I know the police is on the corner. I have to make sure that I'm looking like I'm not doing anything suspicious. So I'm looking up, my chest out, not looking around, making sure that I look like a good kid. What what do you think this does to a kid over and over and over again? Specifically when they're in our schools. I went to so many schools that never had nurses, never had psychiatrists, never had anyone, social workers, anyone to help the kids, but they always had a cop. And that type of just the 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 statement that you're putting out in the community there is that we are watching you. Like, I, again, I'm in medical school now, so I'm with a lot of the kids that went, live in the communities like Rosedale and like the nicer communities. And I go to their houses now. You don't see the cops in Rosedale, but you will always see them in Rexdale. And it's the idea that, okay, what what is the idea of community safety, right? Like what makes a community safe? We know from the police's own statistics as Sherry just said, and what we know further, Violent crime is not the majority of what police do. Like, well, what, they, what the propaganda always says, uh, there's literally ads now on YouTube that talk about police walk into the worst day of, of everyone's day. So, you know, we have to have compassion for that. And it's like, whoa, 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 relax. Violent crime is, from, my, from some of the statistics, between 4% to maximally like 15% to 20% of all the calls that you do. And that's like, that's even pushing it. The majority of the crime is domestic calls community calls, mental health calls, addiction calls, traffic calls. None of those things specifically need to be done with a man with a gun come, or two people in a car driving around with a gun trying to solve a problem. These things need to be delegated to other community, other groups that are actually specially trained for this. As doctors, do you know how much training we do to be able to do anything specifically, uh, if I want to touch your hand, like specifically to the, the skin of your finger. We have doctors specifically for that that are trained to do that. If I want to be able to do your heart and a specific part of your heart, I need to be trained in that. The way we have our police here, so we train them to do everything at once. And then we're surprised when they fail exponentially. I, I, I agree. The police should do much less than this. And we need to have groups and organizations and structures that help with that. In medicine, we've been doing that. We've been trying to streamline everything, say, okay, we need to bring allied help in to do some of the stuff that we can't do. Like a psychiatrist can't do psychotherapy the entire time. That doesn't make any sense. There's too many people that need it and not enough doctors. So now what we do, we bring in nurse practitioners, we bring in social workers, bring in other people, other allied help to help us with the work. That is what we think the police need to do things like that where their work can't be theirs anymore mental health cannot be theirs anymore traffic cannot be theirs anymore and with that you'll see that the police are not they'll do a much smaller subset of the work than they say that they do.
0: let's let's talk about those mental health calls that are a lot of what the police do i mean um you know you you came from Rexdale, live in parkdale i mean often when we see the police out on the street uh, what are they dealing with? They're dealing with somebody having a mental health crisis is what they're dealing with. Um, and uh, we know that that often ends really badly for the person with a mental health crisis. Um, we've seen killings um, in the city uh, many over the years, um, uh, just in that situation. And, and long has been this discussion about, well, we should have, you know, like special teams, people who are trained in mental health and diffusing situations like that to go out, not police. Um, And then there was talk at the city about a pilot project to do that, but none of this ever, I mean, first of all, where's the money going to come from if it doesn't come from the inflated police budget. But I mean, now the police are talking about having a special wing of mental health, I mean, so trying to justify that those kinds of calls. Um, What is the, like, why can't we... Get this happening. When Honestly, if you were to poll it, I'm sure most people would say, yeah, let's have mental health teams go out to mental health calls. Um, <laughs> so why is this not happening? Any thoughts, Samir?
1: You're in the oh, midst of so it. So many. So mm-hmm. many. I am on the front line of the stuff we think about it all the time. It's The majority of people don't actively sit with this conversation and relish the information and how we've been fed 60, 70, 80 years of propaganda about what the police do like straight up propaganda about, okay, I'm a good guy with a gun going to a situation where there's a bad guy with or without a gun and I'm going to solve that issue. That is not how policing works in a real society. We live in a complex world where people have complex issues that lead them to crime or not to crime. That is the thing. A criminal is not just a bad person. That is, it, it, that, I feel like that's where we have to start. It, it's humanizing the people that are the victims in my eyes. In my eyes, the criminals are a victim of a system that they don't even know, or just a cog in, right? Like in the communities I come from, if I, if I tell you where a lot of the people I grew up with are, or my friends are, a lot of them aren't here. A lot of them are in prison. A lot of them doing stuff that other people would look at and say, "Wow, that is disgusting. How did you do that? That is a horrible place for you. You should be in jail. There's nothing better for you to society." The way I look at it is, you were in schools where every teacher told you you were never going to amount to anything you were criminalized before you even got out of there your parents are working two to three jobs trying to do something and even they aren't getting ahead in life so what does this tell you what does it set up for you in in your life what does it look like and what i want to tell these people is every day we're losing kids to to this to this world this world of crime this world of just lack of opportunity lack of a future they don't care about what's happening to them because they don't see anything themselves And all I am trying to say is, and like that's my biggest thesis of why I'm in this field and why I work in this group. Kids are innocent. Like the kids being born into these situations are happening every single day. And by the time they're 15, 16, 17, 18, they're almost gone. They've seen so much in their lives, seen so much trauma, struggle, poverty, violence, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, physical. It's so bad. And if you think, that police are what will solve these issues, I am so sorry. Like, you have just drank the Kool-Aid or you have just bought into the police's own propaganda because we have to remember, the police need to be able to justify themselves so they can be a self-serving budget. Like, okay, 2013, uh, Rob Ford. He, again, I'm from their area, the Rex area is where they're from. They wanted to cut the police budget. Rob Ford, conservative, whatever, Rob Ford wanted to cut the police budget. The the police unions and Bill Blair came out and said, we're not gonna, you're gonna do that? We're gonna. We're not gonna do any traffic. We're gonna stop doing any of our traffic enforcement. So then if we don't pay you more, you're gonna extort our, our citizens? That is what the police are kind of like now. And uh, I feel like if people actually saw the concrete evidence of how the police function in today's society, we wouldn't have a discussion about whether to defund them as radical or not. And we'd actually have a conversation about abolition. And that's the discussion we should be having. Defunding is, is a very, like, it's a, it's a central, it's a centrist discussion. Like we're talking about just taking money away and putting it somewhere else. That has nothing to do with abolition. Abolition is really talking about what is the goal of this stuff? And I, I think that's more interesting.
0: Yeah, let's talk about abolition. We've just got some minutes left and I wanna talk about that. Um, so so abolition, when you say the word of, you know, uh, let's, let's dispense with the police as an option, do something different. Um, I mean, people freak out, right? Like, like people freak out (laughs) at that thought, right? Absolutely. Um, And uh, and, and it doesn't get a lot of traction. So, so what would what would it look like? Let let just like dream a little here. What might it look like? Yeah. So we end the show on a note of hope. What what would it look like if we did do that? How do you see? You know, um, somebody's breaking into a house, or somebody's having a mental health crisis on the street. These kinds of things that happen, that police get called for. Now, what would happen instead?
1: so in my dream everyone has a different abolition dream i'd read a lot about Marian Cava, taba um and like a lot of angela davis i've read a lot of the people in the past and there's been a lot of literature on this stuff so none of this is new right so i just want to preface there and it, it, it's the idea that in a world where we don't have food scarcity people aren't hungry education is as much as people need healthcare is sufficient opportunities are as much as people want if you had everything at the fingertips that you would want, would we need the police force to be as violent and as terroristic as they are currently formed? And in my idea, what leads people to, to crime? What leads people to violence? A majority of it is the social aspects around you. If you're able to remove a lot of those, those things, those pitfalls that let people go down those, th- that path, what would policing look like? would it look like community, what would real community safety look like, right? You wouldn't have these poor communities per se, that there's high uh, v- uh, high robbery rates because people are poor and want to take it from you. Because I grew up in those communities where if people are poor, they're gonna take it from you. You have to be expected, you have to always have some type of high level of guard, always, because anything can happen anytime. What type of situation can we build with a community-based policing? where we have people from these communities who know the people there who say, okay, what is causing this person to act against society? What is making them violent? Oh, do they need help at home? Oh, do they need a job help? Oh, is their family doing that? These intricacies are so hard and honestly, very idealistic. I don't think we're even close to that in the world that we're at right now, where we have Doug Ford talking about we need $75 million more for gangs and guns or we're not going to solve it. So I think we're far from this. But the idea is, in a world where we are post-scarcity in a lot of the things that we're actually experiencing what does policing look like and how can it actually help people instead of just institutionalizing them because we know every study has shown putting someone in a prison does not help that person whatsoever they will come out and they will either do the same thing or they will be uh, they'll be dependent on the system afterwards because they've been taken out and taken. they have no opportunities to provide for themselves so let's create a world where if people fall down, we help them up, and if they are helped up, they do so much better and can help others.
0: Speaking here to uh, Samir Bule, um he's a resident of psychiatry um, medical student here in the city and one of the founders of Doctors for Defunding the Police. Um, that's such a beautiful vision, um, and and it reminds me. I mean, there are places in the world that have kind of a sort of a system like that. Um, uh, so it's not, un, you know, it's not unheard of. I want to kind of, you know, that's that's kind of beautiful and I can just, I, I can sort of almost hear from listeners, you know, but it's so utopian, right? Like as you yourself have said. Um, so even if we just wanna do something simple, like taking the mental health calls out mm-hmm. of policing mm-hmm. and putting in other teams, what can we do to make that happen? Um, oh. Any suggestions? What can, can anybody listening to the show or this podcast do to say, okay, well, at the very least we can do is take the mental health calls away from police.
1: We we need to organize. This, this needs to be a conversation that is happening at every dinner table. That Mental health crises can happen to anyone at any time. I feel like that's what people have to understand. We go to the richest houses in Rosedale. We see them in mental health crises. All we want people to know is that, hey, if we can get professionals trained in this to be dealing with this, there will be better outcomes for everyone in the end. That's it. That's literally it. And what we need people to do, specifically people with affluence or people who have political clout or capital, please talk to other people around you. Don't, don't, do not come to our communities trying to help us and say, it's great to come help us, 100%. Always come to the communities, get, get touched on the ground, see what's happening, but go back home. Go back to the people you're around and tell them what you know, teach them, bring people in. Like Make sure we build strong societies and communities because that's the only way we get out of this stuff. And COVID isn't going anywhere. We need to really enforce these connections. Mutual aid needs to be stronger. And we need to create societies that actually help the people on the ground.
0: Uh, well, that sounds uh, like a very good place to end this conversation. We've been talking to Samir Boulet. Um, uh, resident again, um, medical resident in psychiatry, and, and I have a lot of hope for the field of psychiatry with people like you, Samira, <laughs> coming up through it because that's, you know, we've talked about this with you on other shows, that there's another system of control has been used as a system of control for uh, for folk, particularly women and racialized people. Um, and also, of course, he's uh, one of the founders of Doctors to Defund the Police. So have those conversations at home, folk. Um, talk about why we're still sending men with guns, uh, trained in a military style, out to mental health calls. Makes no sense when you say it, and it makes absolutely no sense in practice. So let's have those those conversations until next time. And also, also by the way, love to hear from you. Um, always answer emails. Uh, easy to find me, Sherry DeNovo, host here of The Radical Reverend Show. Uh, until next time uh, on, of course, the station that still remains independent, CIT 89.5 FM.